this is Katie Dunleavy with My Chronic Illness and Me. As someone who's struggled with chronic illness for more than 15 years, I've often felt incredibly isolated in my journey. Now, as a coach for others dealing with chronic illness, I've realized I'm not alone in feeling that way. There just aren't a lot of forums out there where people can connect about their experiences with chronic illness. So this is that space, a place where we can educate each other about different illnesses, dispel myths, and most importantly, share our stories. Let's dive in. Hey, everyone. So on today's episode, I'm talking to Brenna, who is a graduate student in social work and who deals with pretty severe endometriosis. I talked to her about her experience, about the extreme mishandling of her care when she was young and about how that's impacted her since then. I hope you enjoy. Hi, Brenna. Hello. It's so nice to meet you. It's good to meet you too. So I like to start out my conversations with folks just asking them to tell me a little bit about themselves. You and I have never met before, so I'd love to just get to know you a little bit. Yeah, definitely. So originally from the Atlanta area, born and raised, but I recently moved to Oregon. Um, oh, like nice. Portland, yeah, Portland metro area. So recently moved there just for a change in scenery and more job opportunities. So did you know anyone living there or was it a completely new thing? Yeah. So I actually came here for a wedding last November for one of my good friends. It was her wedding. And whenever I moved here, it just felt like home. So I was like, let's just do it. So nice. I moved like six months later. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So that's definitely so exciting. And also like, wow, to start over in a totally new place is, is a lot. Congratulations. Yes. Thanks. <laughs> So, so yeah. And then just currently I am getting my master's in social work in a clinical like trauma-informed program where I'm focusing on my career goal. Ultimate career goal is to help serve LGBTQ plus folks in sort of like medical setting. So advocating for people with like chronic illnesses or people postpartum who aren't being heard by medical staff. (laughs) Um, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. As usual, you know, but I'd like to be a social worker to help just help advocate for them and support them. So, yeah. That's really interesting. And you mentioned when we first got connected that that career path kind of came out of your own experience. Yeah. So I have a lot lot of medical trauma just because constantly getting going, going in for tests and trying to figure out what I have and doctors not listening and having to be my own advocate when I was like 13 was really traumatizing. Mm -hmm. So I just, I was like, I don't want anybody else to experience this. It's awful. So yeah, that's kind of what led me into doing social work for sure. Just so I can like kind of help convey the voice of clients, patients who may not be able to get their point across to like doctors, nurses, et cetera. So yeah. So will that look like being a patient advocate at a hospital or like what does that potentially look like for you in your vision? Yeah, definitely. So I think initially starting out, definitely being like a patient advocate at a hospital. I'm also interested in uh, community health, uh, like public Mm -hmm. health, just because those often get overlooked. So being able to help support patients who a lot of them are low income and don't have access to better, nicer medical facilities and doctors. So that's something that interests me. And then something else also interests me is postpartum care for especially like queer folks, just because they already have a lot of obstacles and just kind of assisting them in that process. Just because like, it's like after someone gives birth, usually people focus on the baby and it's like the mother or whoever birthed the baby is just like out the window. And it's so crazy how that, yeah, it's like, 
up until the baby's born, it's all about the mom. Mm-hmm. Get mommy comfortable. Let's do everything we possibly can. If they even have a splinter, let's get them yeah. into the hospital, right? Like, And then right. immediately, it just is not anymore. It's like they're not even there once the baby's born. It's insane. Exactly. Yeah. It's And I've, I've witnessed it with just being in the labor and delivery room for one of my good friends, my early 20s. And that just kind of like changed me as well, just because I'm like... Sh- she couldn't even really advocate for herself. And it's just like kind of witnessing that. And it was like immediately after the baby got out, it was like, okay, we're going to pay attention to the baby. Obviously, new life, I get it. But nobody was supporting her. And I'm just like, that makes me really upset. So <laughs> kind of moving yeah, beyond like, like the chronic illness could, fear, but yeah. Yeah, like maybe we could support both the new baby and the mom who just uh, birthed the new baby. Like maybe that would be possible. Right, exactly. Uh, that's cool that that's where you're going. So, okay, so... Let's take a a little bit of a step back and just Mm -hmm. tell me a little bit about, if you don't mind, your your chronic illness, your experience with chronic illness and and how that has sort of come about in your life. Yeah, definitely. So it all honestly started when I was, gosh, it was probably like a year or two after I got my period for the first time. So like 12, 13 Mm -hmm. years old, I started having almost like, like symptoms you would get if you had like an autoimmune disease, right? So like, a horrible fatigue, really, really achy joints, swollen joints, GI issues, etc. And I grew up having chronic migraines. So that was something else that I was also dealing with at, this, at the time. But yeah, I honestly, it was probably around 15 when I was like, okay, my body cannot take this anymore. Like I remember I would come home from school and it's like I was behind in classes because like whenever I would come home from school, I just like physically did not have the energy to do any homework. Like I would just like lay on the couch and my, I just remember all my joints being so, so swollen. And it always happened usually like around my period, you know, it was like very yeah. going along with my menstrual cycle. And I remember going to the doctor and they just took so much blood. That was really traumatizing too, because I'm not, I'm not a fan of needles, unless it's like for mm-hmm. a tattoo, that's different. Um, but, <laughs> yeah, but not, not in this way. And I just remember they took like 15 vials of blood and I'm, I'm tiny. And I just like, I'm like, I yeah, don't you're know like 13 or 15, yeah, I guess you said. Right. Yeah. yeah oh but still, yeah. And I just remember my doctor, instead of actually listening to me and saying like, oh, well, maybe, you know, like, let's test for like lupus or whatever, various autoimmune diseases, because mm-hmm. that's kind of what it looked like I was presenting at the time. She instead focused on the way I talked and was like, you need to fix the way that you speak. You don't speak correctly. And I'm like, excuse me? Yeah, I'm like child. Like I'm I'm a child. I'm like I'm not sorry I don't have like the right vernacular or what have you. Yeah, so she was picking on me, telling me you need to stand up straighter and speak better. And instead of even talking about my symptoms, that's what she was kind of going at. And whenever I get blood taken, I usually faint. So kind of have to have like smelling salts and everything on standby and food and whatnot just to kind of help me come to and I just remember coming to, she's like, okay, like just being so dramatic, like kind of attitude, saying things like that. And I'm just like, wow, this is great. Yeah. So that was kind of like the beginning of a lot of medical trauma was that interaction with that doctor. Um, oh my God. My, ma- my mouth is literally like yeah. hanging open right now. Like that's how my grandmother spoke to me. That's not how a doctor right. is supposed to talk to you. Exactly. Did you have your parents in the room with you when that happened? Yeah. I had my mom in there and she was just like, 
I think I think she was so shocked as well because it's like you think doctor whatever like they should be taking care of you having good bedside right. manner like that's really like the bare minimum but I think she was just like okay this is and just kind of shocked as well um but that was kind of she's like okay now that I'm aware I'm gonna advocate and do what I need to do uh, yeah as like a mom so yeah and she was just like test results came back she's like you don't have anything goodbye Mm-hmm. I was like, okay, so I tried. I was like, okay, because at the at the time it was like gluten free food was just becoming a thing. It was like fresh mm-hmm. on the market, and I was like, okay, well maybe I'll try doing gluten free. And so I got rid of gluten for a year. I didn't notice a difference. I mean, yeah. it kind of helped my GI issues a little bit, but like it wasn't noticeable to where like I don't I don't need to spend seven dollars because at the time it was so expensive for yeah, yeah, yeah. a box of like gluten free pasta. Like <laughs> I didn't yeah. need to do that. So I stopped doing that and I I was fine. But I mean, yeah, yeah, at the time I was having on top of that, just really, really bad menstrual pain. And it just, as I got older, it just got progressively, progressively worse. And I remember it was in undergrad was when I got on birth control to hopefully like help. It was more so honestly, whenever I got prescribed birth control, it was to help my acne. And I'm like, oh, okay, mm-hmm. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and it wasn't because of my pain or anything that was happening like that was all overlooked. Um, I remember I got an IUD first and I could physically feel where it was and I was in constant pain. And I so growing up, I used, I do yoga all the time. Yoga is uh-huh. like one of my things that I do for self-care and movement. And I could not do that for the three, four months that I had it in because I could feel physically feel where it is. Oh, God. So, How old were you at that point? Mm, I think like 20, 21, okay. around there, like early 20s. So. I expressed that to my doc, my OBGYN, and she was like, okay, we'll get taken out. You can get put on like the pill since that's not like an implant inside you. So I got put on the pill for my acne, um, not mm-hmm. for any of my period issues. And yeah, I was on that for a bit, but I was just really, really tired of the way it was making me feel. It, like mood wise, it was like making me really depressed. And I'm just like, I don't like the way this makes me feel. So I weaned myself off of it. But once I weaned myself off of it, that's whenever... And I was on that for like four years. And I weaned myself off yeah. of it. And it was just like... <laughs> you just know, right just back. hit me. Oh, yeah. But it was like 10 times worse with my period pains. So and even so even during like the ovulation phase, like I can feel... I can physically feel my egg drop. Like that's... Oh, my gosh. How, yeah. And it wow. hurts so badly. Like I, I will like keel over in pain. And I'm like, okay my right, right ovary this month, I could feel it. <laughs> and it just got progressively and progressively worse. And this was like 2020 now. So everything's getting worse uh, in mm-hmm. the period front. And I remember talking about it with my OBGYN and she's like, I can't do this anymore. Like, can I please get like a laparoscopy? Because that was whenever I just heard about endometriosis. And I was like, wait, like I, I match all these symptoms. This is like, this sounds like this could be it. And because I also had bowel issues at the time and some bleeding and everything. But my GI doctor was like, we checked you for colonoscopy, endoscopy. Like, you don't have anything wrong with you. It definitely seems more like gynecological. So yeah, I asked for a laparoscopy. And October 2020, I had a diagnostic laparoscopy as well as a cystoscopy, which you don't know what that is. It's where they take a small camera tube and stick it up your urethra to see if there's any anything going on. And yeah, I had that done. and. Typically, a diagnostic laparoscopy is like at least 45 minutes, like an hour and a half, because like they really have to get in there and see everything to see if they see any like lesions. In a lapar, and a cystoscopy is like around like 10 minutes or so. My entire surgery was like 15 minutes long. 
for everything. Whoa. Why? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. They just didn't. They just didn't look at all. She cut me open and the OBGYN cut me open. And like, yeah, there was, it was awful. And I remember waking up and the post-op nurse was just like, I've never seen a surgery that short before. Like that was pointless. Like to put you under anesthesia when I'm already For 15 minutes? Yeah. What did they um, tell you when you got out, when you woke up? So when I woke up, yeah, that's a great question. Because whenever I woke up, I overheard because it was COVID. So you couldn't have anyone there back with you, right? So she had, I had her call my mom since I knew my mom would advocate for me. And I overheard the doctor talking crap about me to her nurse was like, oh my God, this girl is so crazy. Like... (gasps) regarding me. And then I heard her get on the phone with my mom. I was like, okay, your daughter doesn't have endometriosis. She just needs a therapist, honestly. What? Yeah. And I remember she came up to me. Yeah. And she came up to me and she's like, you don't have endometriosis, sweetie. Like (gasps) you most likely have Crohn's. And I'm like, where is that coming from? Like, (laughs) I have some, yeah. I'm like boiling with rage on your behalf right now. Okay, keep yeah. going. I have so many no, questions, but like, I don't want to... <laughs> you're good. No, I'm the same way. I'm just like, ugh. ugh. Yeah. So, so yeah. And she's like, yeah, you don't have endometriosis. And I'm like, cool, thanks. And I just remember going home and just like bawling my eyes out and also in like a lot of pain. And it was just, it was just really, really traumatic. My ex at the time was also there, very much an ex at this point. I actually broke up mm-hmm. with him right after because he had started calling me names like, oh, you're just a medical Karen. You know, like get over it. The doctor's doing their job. They know what they're doing. You need to get over yourself. And I was like, Oh my God. (laughs) I'm like, I don't need you in my life. (laughs) So I was just over it. And and then after like a post-op, you know, like after you've like healed for like a few weeks, you know, I went to go see the OBGYN again. And she was just like, Yeah, you know, honestly, like let's just try doing like the arm implant. I can't remember what it's called, the arm implant. Oh for birth control. Yeah. Yes. And I'm like, no, (laughs) I don't want to like, what are you doing? And she was just like, yeah, let's do that. Like, I just implanted one. I'm like, my 14-year-old niece, like, if she can handle it, like, you can handle it. And I'm just like, what are you doing right now? Like, and I was just like, screw this, I'm done. And yeah, I've basically just gone. And that was like, what, December 2020. And since then, I'm like, I just refused to see a gynecologist until I moved here because they have like better gynecologists here and like better access. And that was like another main reason moving to the Portland area because it's like, there's so much more access to healthcare mm-hmm. and it's more affordable and accessible and they look at things more holistically. And that's what I really appreciate instead of just like, I don't know, just the way that I was used to in Georgia, I guess, uh-huh. um, which is a shame. But but yeah, so that's basically that. I've had every doctor besides my that gynecologist say like, you definitely have endometriosis, but like it's not our specialty. So we can't formally diagnose you with that. So that's basically where I'm at. Yeah. So just kind of dealing with it. It's like every month it's, I mean, every day it's like something yeah. different and definitely, definitely a big challenge. <laughs> oh my gosh, Brenna. Like <laughs> people obviously can't see if they listen to this, but my mouth yes. was like wide open for like half of everything you said. I can't, I just, I'm so sorry about that. The trauma that you had to deal with. Yeah. <laughs> Having a doctor <laughs> tell you to stand up straight and speak properly. And that's what's Mm -hmm. actually going on when you're 15. Like I was thinking when you were telling me that, I don't think I even knew what an autoimmune disease was when I was 15. Like the fact that you were like, oh, this is presenting as an autoimmune disease. I should probably go see a doctor. Even that is a crazy amount of 
preparation and knowledge that a 15-year-old has to have. And then to be told that you're basically just like making it up is a horrible way to start the process, first of all. And then everything beyond that, like, oh my God, I'm just, I'm in shock. I'm so sorry that that's been your experience. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely, everyone usually gets shocked whenever I tell them, but I'm like, this is the reality of what people, especially people who are like trying to get a diagnosis for like a chronic illness. Oh yeah. Like this is a lot of times our stories, even though there's like differences, of course, but at the same time, it's like having to be your own advocate is usually the way the story goes, right? A hundred percent. I mean, I I have a sort of similar trajectory, which I've shared before Mm -hmm. on, on this, but Similarly, like when I was in high school, I started to just have so much pain all the time and particularly around my period. And I actually went to a doctor for the first time, probably at 17. And she said the word endometriosis, like, oh, it might possibly be this and put me on birth control. But between that and when I was like 32, nobody ever believed me that that's what was going on. Like similarly, I saw GI doctors. I had so many colonoscopies. It's not even a joke. Like, (laughs) like, no, most people don't have to have like five colonoscopies. (laughs) It's so awkward. Like my, like one of my, I think it was like my PCP. He was like, you've had more colonoscopies than me. And I'm like, cool. Like that's, let's not compare. Like, please, (laughs) this is awkward. (laughs) Yeah. And then similarly, every doctor was like, yeah, we don't know. We can't find anything. We, nothing's showing up. So you're fine. You're probably fine. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I'm not fine. I'm telling you loud and clear, I'm not fine. And it sounds like that's what was happening with you too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So much. And I think it was just like hard because it's like people even like my corner, like who are supposed to be in my corner kind of giving up on me. And it's like, I really felt like I only had myself and definitely grateful for like my immediate family, for sure. My parents and brothers who were just like, no, like we're, we believe you, like you're good. Um, and close friends as well, who also have chronic illnesses and have kind of maybe not endometriosis, but they've experienced kind of navigating the medical system and on your own. So yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask you like, how did you cope that whole time? <laughs> I know. I'm like thinking back now. I mean, I started, I did get a therapist. I had a therapist before she even suggested that, that OBGYN, you know. Can't believe she said that. Just saying that. (laughs) Just because just stressed about was like school and everything, um, life. So yeah, I got a therapist and she was very, very helpful. So that, I mean, just kind of supporting me and like validating me and making me feel better in that way. So definitely having a therapist helped the most and just like journaling and something cathartic that I do is like reading back on my journal entries from 2020, you know, or even just leading up to that whenever it was just awful and after the aftermath, right? So definitely journaling, yoga, therapy. Yep. (laughs) That's how I coped. (laughs) And I mean, that's great that you had a therapist and, and, you know, a lot of people don't and that's wonderful. Mm -hmm. But then I'm sitting here being like, "Uh uh-huh. Like imagine if someone had like a compound femur fracture Mm -hmm. for like 20 years and they were like yeah but I I have a therapist so it's like I'm coping with it and so you're surviving that's you're literally just that's literally and and that's how I've been feeling honestly honestly this entire time I've just been feeling like I'm surviving right now like I'm truly not thriving and I think it's really hard especially in the age of social media where you get to see like your friends and family members thriving. I mean, obviously social media, you can put out what you want, but it still hits, you know, it hits you when you're 
in bed, you know, with like a hot water bottle literally burning you all over. And you're just laying there kind of scrolling through social media and seeing friends who are like, oh my gosh, I'm in Denmark right now, you know, living out my life. And and I'm just like, wow, I I wish I could do that. But like, I have to, there, there's a lot of preparation for me to do all, do traveling and stuff like that. Like my spontaneity kind of got taken away the older I got. Yeah. And that's yeah. something that I've had to grieve for sure. It really reminds me actually of, so I had my excision surgery in January of 2020. So like right mm-hmm. before pandemic stuff started. And I actually had a similar, like it only took half an hour, which I knew immediately when I woke up, something was wrong, like something had gone wrong. And they told me that I didn't have it. And then the biopsies came back that I, yeah, of course I did. So, (laughs) but it reminds me what you're saying of the period, like three plus years before my surgery, where I just similarly like canceled plans every other time was having to like, sorry, I can't again. Like I'm literally stuck in bed. I can't leave my heating pad. I can't get out of my pajamas. Mm -hmm. And I would go to work every day and I would come home and cry just so much pain, rock bottom kind of situation. And it's just reminding me a lot of that phase of of my journey. And it was, I actually found a coach, which is like the whole reason why I'm a coach now is she really helped me figure out how to shift over time. It took a long time, but like she helped me find resources and she helped me figure out a surgeon situation. and, And that was incredibly helpful. So I don't know. I was just reflecting, reflecting on where you're at right now. First of all, yeah. do you know about Nancy's Nook? I just want to make sure I say I do. that before. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'm aware of Nancy's Nook. Yes. Okay, cool. And have you looked for specialists in the Portland area? Not yet. I've done kind of just like my own research, but I was planning on utilizing that once I like healthcare benefits kicked in and everything just to kind of see mm-hmm. who out there is available. Because it's, I mean, it's really tedious going through every single person's bio and looking at reviews and... yep. Yeah. So yes, definitely grateful for that resource. Okay. I just wanted to make sure that mm-hmm. you had that. Yeah. I don't know. Where do you want to go from here? What <laughs> do you want to talk more about? We could talk more about the the medical part of it, the trauma piece of it, if you'd like. I mean, I, I just am interested to, to hear about really anything you want to share. Yeah. I think, I think the thing that's really hit me the most as like I've been going through this whole process is like kind of going back to that grief. And I've shared mm-hmm. it with friends who don't have a chronic illness. And even some that do, they're just like, what? like I don't understand grief like in, in regards to this situation. And it's like when you have a chronic illness and you're truly, like I said, you're just surviving. You're literally just existing. And it's like I've been in this constant state of like grief, like grieving my body that once was before I got my Mm -hmm. period. And that was Mm -hmm. forever ago because I'm almost 30. So it's like, (laughs) that was a long, a long time ago. And just the things that I can't do now, or if I want to do these things, I have to be super medicated Yeah, because I do with my, whatever's going on, you know, most likely endo, but it's like, I can't officially say that, but I have to take so many different kinds of medication because for the GI issues, because I'll get like, embarrassing symptoms that I'm just like, I'm mm-hmm. in my 20s. Like, why do I have like incontinence issues? So yeah, for the longest time I was dealing with bowel issues. And then last year I got a really bad UTI kidney infection. And now I've been having bladder issues ever since. So now leading up to my period, I know when it's about to come because I 
am in so much pain with my bladder and it's just, yeah, not fun. So I think, but there's, yes, going back to the grief, that's mainly something that I've been thinking about a lot lately is just like, yeah, just how I can't do all the things that my peers are doing. It's like, I should be thriving right now. I'm in my twenties. And so it's kind of like, I'm having to learn how to do things in my own way that works for me and my body. And at first it was kind of depressing, but now it's kind of like, you know, now that I'm in a new city and, you know, able to like do new things and meet new people, I think it's going to be getting a bit better and also having the access to healthcare as well, like better healthcare doctors that actually listen. So I think that'll help kind of aid in getting over that grief, I guess, or, I mean, I don't think you ever fully get over grief. You just kind of cope with it. Well, grief is not something that's really talked a, a whole lot about in the chronic illness space. I mean, I think people are aware that there's, and I think people who are really deep in the chronic illness space maybe are better at sort of understanding how grief fits into the picture. But yeah, it's really difficult to explain to people in our lives where the grief factor comes in, right? Because there will be times when you're able to live your life and you're having fun, right? And you're out with friends and and people will see that and they sort of think, well, but you're fine. You, you seem fine. And it's so difficult to explain to somebody else, like, I know that I seem fine sometimes and it might be the case that I have glimmers of what like a normal life could look like or might be and and that's a gift but that is not the norm and yeah having to grieve for your body and your health before mm-hmm. this started and also like your body and your health and your mental health that might have been if you A, didn't have this disease or B, had been able to get diagnosed earlier or C, had really good medical care. Like there's so much grief that goes into having a chronic illness in general, I think. And I think especially or in particular endometriosis because of the additional sort of like medical gaslighting that so much of us go through. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I definitely can relate to all that. Yeah. And it's and that that is something I hear a lot in the chronic illness community, especially, yeah, especially in regards to like endometriosis, just because, yeah, people see those like those days where you're able to go out and do things. And honestly, sometimes they just suck it up, take a bunch of right. medicine, have a whole like, it's like I, I've had to get used to like carrying like a big tote around that's literally half of it is full of medication and just like yeah. emergency supplies that I need in case something, something happens. And so I just kind of have to like, sometimes I suck it up and I'm like, all right, let's, let's go, let's do this. but. Yeah, I become, I feel like with my friends, it's like I become kind of like a flake in a way, you know, very flaky. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I don't, I don't mean to be, but I literally cannot help it. And I'm not yeah. going to be fun or, to be around while I'm in pain. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think a, a big part of the grief too is, okay, even if you are able to go out and suck it up, which mm-hmm. again, like a lot of us do, we have to, right? To get yeah. through our freaking lives, like go to work, get the, you know, just literally get through the days. Even if you're able to do that from time to time, you have to also be aware that like, okay, I'm probably going to pay for this later. Like if I suck it up today and take a shit ton of medication and make it through and I'm able to be out in the world, I might have to be in bed for two days after that. Or if I go on a trip to visit my nephew, 
And I want to do that. Like I have, maybe it's the absolute place I'd want to be, right? If I could choose. And also I might have to be in bed for like almost a week afterwards. And I think part of the grief is like the loss of almost like that sort of carefree nature of like spontaneity. Like mm-hmm. I could just go out and do this. And and, and people like, how do people just go out in the world and just live their lives and don't, and not have to think about recovering tomorrow or planning buffer time on the side of trips to make right. sure that they can get out of bed and go to work. Like I just, I think a big part, at least in my experience has mm-hmm. been grieving that sort of like ability to just be mm-hmm. <laughs> and not have yeah. to think about the consequences. Yeah, definitely. And that's something that I think about too a lot just because, yeah, I mean, the most people have to think about is, oh, you know, if they're drinking a lot, it's like, okay, got to mentally prepare for the hangover or not and just deal with it the next day. And, but for me, it's like, it's like constant mental math, I guess. Okay. If I, if I go out to this concert or food festival or whatever, I have to keep in mind that I'm probably going to be in bed or having a really bad flare up the next day or two. And so it's just like, it's just constant like shifting around schedules and mental math. And I guess a lot of people don't really realize that. It's triage. Yeah. Yeah, It's triage. Like if I am going to be able to make this giant meeting I have tomorrow, then I have to cancel Mm -hmm. a social thing for tonight. Or if it's really important that I be at a friend's birthday party on Saturday, I actually need to make sure that I don't have this doctor's appointment two days before. Like, because I can't do it all because there's only so much energy and so much stamina, right? Right, exactly. And I think, yeah, and it's definitely like, I feel like that's hitting me too as well, being again, like in this new space, but also being like in my 20s, single and kind of like, so, like doing my master's and juggling that stress, especially, and especially since, yeah, it's a lot. And especially since the type of master's degree that I'm doing, clinical social work, it's a huge program and longer than normal master's degrees. And it's a lot of just constant introspection and that kind mm-hmm. of work, which I love it. It's wonderful. But it's also a lot mentally and that can kind of weigh on me physically. Absolutely. As well. So it's like juggling that and yes, being in this new space and kind of somewhat soft launching into like the dating field and everything. And but it's just kind of even giving me sort of like premature sort of anxiety with like, okay, I know I have to explain to people over and over, like maybe having to switch plans and people not taking you seriously or, you know, and I don't care if they're judging me, whatever. But you know what I mean? Kind of having to go through all those, that whole thought process. So yeah. And then there's the whole process of like, how much do you share with people? I know that like before I started working with my health coach, I didn't share much at all. Like I, people I worked with closely knew and like close friends and family knew that I had health issues, knew that I needed to go to the doctor a lot, needed to work from home pretty regularly if I had to, but I didn't share about it being probably endometriosis because it's just not something that is comfortable always to talk about. And I think now I'm much more open with people. I say the word endometriosis mm-hmm. actually kind of frequently because I want to sort of do my part to to destigmatize. But yeah, it's really hard when you're meeting new people and you don't know how much 
to share or not share. Yeah. And you don't know how they're going to take it or what they're going to say. Like, it's a really hard thing to juggle. Yeah. It's like, am I trauma dumping? Am I like kind of going through that as well? And most people don't know what endometriosis is. So it's like, That's correct. when you say that, it's just like, oh, okay, cool. Let's go. Yeah. I know thing. it's something like, with your uterus. <laughs> like, I have no idea what that actually means. Right. Yeah. And it's like, and, and people also don't realize like it's a full body condition. And it's, yeah, and it just, it really, really affects you. But I've had people who I tell them, hey, like I'm dealing with this. These are some of the symptoms that I have regularly. This is how it goes. Um, Like a quick synopsis. And it's like, they don't fully understand. It's like, okay, sure. Like, thanks for telling me. But like, yeah, let's go. Like, let's go do this. Let's go do that. It's just like, I can't. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And that's another part of, I think, the grief and the frustration too, is like constantly having to remind people or reset boundaries. And again, not because they're being malicious in any way. It's Mm -hmm. just, they don't know. And that's fair. There's no reason really why they should know somebody else's condition, right? Like even with my own partner, I will be like, hey, I'm not feeling well today. Or like, hey, I'm having a flare up. Hey, I'm in a lot of pain. And I, we've been together for like seven years. I'm like, Mm -hmm. you should know what that means by now. But no, like, and it's not his fault. It's because he's not in my body, right? So, but it's so frustrating, especially when you feel so crappy to constantly have to be like, okay, what this actually means is that I need to be in bed today or that I can't put on clothes because they literally don't fit around my midsection right now. Mm -hmm. Or like, I need to go home by 10 o'clock because otherwise I will be miserable all day tomorrow. Like, and it's just, it's that extra effort to have to communicate that stuff like that over and over and over and over again. That's just exhausting, honestly. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And it's like, I, I understand the fact that like, you know, they they don't understand, but it's like, can we, I guess like have a plan in place. Like if I, you know, I can't physically go out, can we do something inside and kind of flex a bit? But it's funny that you talk about the clothes because so before I was then going to do social work, I was actually going to go to fashion school. My oh, goal really? was to be a fashion stylist. And yes, that was like my jam. But ultimately, it just didn't end up happening uh, just for various life reasons. But it's still something that I hold near and dear to my heart. But that's something that's been a challenge too, is wearing clothes that I want to wear. And it's now like I have to shop in maternity sections. Oh, yeah. To, yeah, to help with being able to fit into my clothes and having to basically change a lot of my style or accommodate my bloat and everything because I'm bloated almost all the time. And, you know, medications making me like gain weight and stuff. And it may not be noticeable to other people, but it's like for me when I'm trying to fit in my clothes, it's like, (laughs) it's not happening. And it's also really, I don't know if you deal with this, but for me, if I wear something that maybe, maybe in the morning it starts off as like, fine. But then in the afternoon, it's like, you're literally like buttons are about to like bust out and and also (laughs) yeah yeah, and also for me too wearing clothing like that that kind of constricts me over time because like the bloat growing throughout the day it actually puts me into a flare-up having that constriction Mm -hmm. and it's so 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 painful and explain that that to people they don't understand that but I'm just like this literally like I will get a flare-up from wearing jeans yeah literally something so basic (laughs) I I mean I think the getting dressed thing is, I, I think, something that to some degree, most women or people who identify as women can understand the stress that can come with that, right? But it's it's like, no, it's literally torture. Like, I, I can't tell you how many times I've just broken down into 
tears trying to put on clothes, like just a pair of leggings and a shirt that doesn't make me look eight months pregnant when I'm having a flare up. Like it's impossible sometimes. Sometimes I've canceled plans because I literally have tried on every single thing in my closet and cannot make it work in a way that makes my body feel comfortable. And it's that degree that I think is just so difficult to explain to somebody because somebody can be like, oh, get over it. You look fine. And it's like, that's not what we're talking about. Yeah. Like we're talking about, I literally like my body doesn't feel like my own right now. And you try putting on clothes when that's the case. Yeah, that's definitely, I've been there as well with, I'm just like, it sounds cheesy to people on the outside or like, you're being dramatic. And it's just like, no, A, it's like physically painful, but B, it's just also yeah. kind of depressing as well. And and also tying in the grief, it's like fashion is such a huge part of my life. And I'm just that type of person. I love going thrifting and like kind of like curating my closet and having really unique pieces. And I've had to like look at pieces and be like, I, I want that piece so much. But like I physically, I know I will never be able to wear it because yeah. like it's not stretchy enough or right. whatever. Yeah, I've definitely broken down in my closet as well. <laughs> like just not being able to try and close and or have them fit when they once did. Um, yeah. Like three months ago, or you know what I mean? Something like that. So oh, yeah. Like, A pair of yeah. jeans I wore yesterday could not fit today, which is the most frustrating thing. Like, how are you supposed to get dressed when that's yeah. the case? And also expensive too, like having to like it's buy clothes so all expensive. the time. I'm just like, oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Ugh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you were talking about like meeting people to potentially open up the dating scene in, mm-hmm. in Portland. And you mentioned your family a little bit. I'm wondering like how, how endo and fibroids and, and IBS and all the symptoms that you deal with on a day-to-day basis have impacted your relationships. Yeah, I think so during COVID and everything. And, and before that, I was moved back home just to save money during undergrad and everything. And so my parents and my siblings, it's like they understand, okay, like we see how you feel because like, I, like it's to the point where I've had to like pass out a few times or like I collapse and like just because the pain is so bad. I'm like, I can't move right now. So, so yeah, but yeah, I think honestly, I've lost a lot of friendships. I found some just like other reasons, but I've noticed yeah. that I've lost friendships because I have repeatedly not been able to show up or had to like cancel plans, right? And yeah. And you know, these are people that I've known for a minute, like a, a good chunk of time. It's not like a brand new person. And it's definitely impacted that or or we have to so regarding the ex for example, um mm-hmm. we were together for like 2 years or so and we would have to adjust our plans or whatever to accommodate for me. So something about myself, I'm a huge foodie and I love going around to just try different restaurants. And I remember one time we went to this Japanese sort of like, so an izakaya, Japanese like bar. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. So one of my favorite restaurants in the Atlanta area, Shoya Izakaya. And I remember we went there for just like a big group hangout, hanging with friends, eating and just having a good time. And I remember on the way home, we had to stop like three or four different times to different gas stations so that I could, because like I, when I'm having a flare up, like I cannot hold anything. And I'm like, we gotta, we gotta go. So yeah, and it's just like, he would get very, very frustrated. He's like, oh my God, I, like, I don't feel like dealing with this. And over time, it's... Oh, and I'm just like, okay, well, I don't need you in my life. So in well, a way, also, like, yeah. you think I feel like dealing like this? Yeah, with know, this? Right? Like, like, it's I'm, not freaking party for me either. Like, thanks. Yeah, I get it. 
yeah. yeah, definitely. 10 out of 10. But it's also in a weird way. And I guess it's just the optimist in me. I view having a chronic illness as sort of like a great way to weave out really terrible mm-hmm. people and just really unsavory people that like I don't need in my life. So it's like yeah. now being in the space where it's just like progressed and gotten a lot worse. It's like, okay, I have my people and they're mm-hmm. all very supportive of me. And most of them have chronic illnesses as well. Or if they don't, they're just like, hey, I see you. And I yeah. like, I will meet you where you're at. Because that's how I am with my friendships. And I think it's really frustrating for me when I wouldn't get the same in return. But then I realized, I'm like, okay, I don't need these people in my life. Yeah. So yeah. And I think moving on to like the dating scene and everything, it's just like, it's kind of what you were talking about before. Like I, cause like, I don't really like to share a lot like that, but it's like, you want to get mm-hmm. vulnerable, but like how, how vulnerable are we getting? Right. Right. <laughs> and, yeah. and I'm going to, am I going to scare this person off? But also kind of moving back to that sort of like optimistic perspective that I had of have about chronic illness is like, if I do happen to say too much or I'm sharing a bit about it, if they don't respond in a way of like, I see you and yeah, goodbye. Right. Goodbye. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's like the one little positive that I can find. <laughs> I think that's a really good point. And it's, it's so true. Like it can be heartbreaking because you can lose friendships or relationships mm-hmm. or really strain relationships sometimes with just the facts that you have to deal with because so many people don't get it. But it can also not only sort of show who the real gems are in your mm-hmm. life, right? But create bonds with those people that that are really, really true and deep. So that's kind of beautiful and it kind of sucks. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's like the both, whole process right? sucks. It's like the whole process sucks, but then like sort of like the light at the end of the tunnel is having those those people that truly understand or may even be going through it, through something similar themselves that really get it so and can be truly there for you and support you and or just like hey it's fine if we move our hangout session to tomorrow when you're feeling better or whatever like yeah go go sleep or do what you have to do like it's all good so yeah i have a friend one of my best friends who has a certain friends she calls friends of the couch mm-hmm. <laughs> and i feel like it's she does not have a chronic illness but i've adapted this term because for me it's like I know that someone is a a true friend when I can be like, I feel terrible. Can I just sit in my house or come to your house and we'll sit on the couch and watch a movie and I can wear my pajamas? Like, is that okay? And for those people who that's okay with, like, those are people who are never, never getting rid of me. Like, they're in my life forever, you know? (laughs) Yeah, definitely. (laughs) No, I honestly, that's in a way become like one of my favorite ways to hang out. And it's kind of weird because it's like before I'm just like, oh yeah, like let's let's go like hit up the city and like let's go do this and that. And it's like, yes, I still love doing those things when I'm physically able. But I also just love being able to just sit on the couch wearing the frumpiest clothes. I don't care. Yeah. It's comfy. Yeah. It works. And just being able to like have some tea and like watch a movie or whatever and just or just like chat and just talk. Have someone, yeah. yeah, have someone to like truly listen to you and share their experience and vice versa. So yeah, I definitely appreciate and I'm very grateful for the like people in my life that I can do that with for sure. Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about your your program or you mentioned earlier that you got into the program because mm-hmm. of your own experience dealing with the medical environment. What are you really hoping to bring to people? I think just being able to like hear people and meet them where they're at. So being someone who is queer and who has a chronic illness 
I personally haven't dealt with it, but like queer folks who, I mean, they have a bunch of other obstacles, especially if they're maybe like trans or whatever, and then presenting not like their biological sex or whatever, right? So they're going to be going through so many more obstacles than me being like a femme presenting person, which like I understand my own privilege in that. But being able to, I don't know, like listen to them and truly like convey Mm -hmm. like, hey, this is what's going on, like to like doctors or medical staff or whatever and get them like the resources that they need. Kind of like, because I have a feeling I'm probably going to be that person who's going to who's going to be like, hey, the doctors probably, you know, they're not, they're just in their own world. They're not listening to you. Here are some resources here. Like, yes. I will support you and be your advocate and cheerleader in the corner. But, and I chose social work as well, because it really focuses on the client being the expert in their own lives. Yeah is a huge piece of it. And I really appreciate that. Cause it's like, again, kind of having a chronic illness. It's like, I mean, it's like, you don't, you're not in my body. I know what's going on with me. And like, and even though maybe a test result comes back as like, Oh, you don't have this thing. It's like in your gut, something's wrong with you. Right. So kind of being able to really understand that of my future clients and being them there for them and giving them resources that will be helpful for them, but also safe for them being yeah. queer queer folks. Yeah. So yeah, that's what I hope to do. <laughs> that's beautiful. And honestly, it's almost exactly the same reason why I became a coach. Mm-hmm. Like just having had the experience I had with the medical system, I never felt listened to. I never felt like doctors were actually hearing me and they would say shit like, oh, we'll hear, we'll fix you. And then when the, as soon as the test results came back negative, oh, you're fine. And so I think it's so important to have people to listen to you. And I think your point about especially queer people who have to already overcome so many hurdles that white women or anyone Mm -hmm. with that kind of privilege don't have to overcome, it's just going to be so important for them to have people to talk to who actually listen, who actually believe them and help them navigate and provide resources. I think it's amazing what you're doing. Thanks. Yeah. And and also even just like further educating people on like endometriosis and kind of like endometriosis and sharing with them, like just like, even if you're like biologically female, you know, and having those parts, anybody can get endometriosis, like people who maybe are like trans, like assigned female at birth, but, or as like identify as being masculine or like a man or whatever. It's like, yeah, they can still get endometriosis and kind of switching. Yeah. Like I've been really passionate about like kind of switching the language of instead of like women and they're like getting their periods. Like no, like people who... People. Just, yeah, people. Yeah. Right. And just kind of being more inclusive with the language because that doesn't happen a lot. And especially like the endometriosis space, it's only women. And I'm just like, no. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Like anybody can get it. Anyone who menstruates, who has those parts can get and have endometriosis and deal with it. I've come across some like trans men who have endometriosis and it's like so and I obviously can't speak to this but just kind of hearing their stories of just like dealing with the pain but also the dysphoria of having I bet. a oh my disease God. that's like equated you know, equated to like only women have it and yeah. you're you identify as a man and you have it it's just like yeah. I can't imagine that on top of the pain and just all the mental and physical issues that go along with having endometriosis so Well, it's funny that you say that because I always try to say women, 
people with uteruses uterus mm-hmm. and people who identify as women. But now right. I'm like, why should I just say people? Like, yeah, honestly, like, why don't I, I just say people? Too. Yeah, I used to do that too. But I'm just like, honestly, like people who menstruate or who have the ability to menstruate. But I will say there have been some studies of yes. like cis men who have gotten endometriosis. I was like, just going to say that. Yeah, yeah they've found it. It's very rare, but right. they have found it in people biologically born as men mm-hmm. who identify as men and like, yeah, there are rare cases that they can have yeah. endo too, which is kind of nuts when you think about it. But right. yeah, so it really, it's just people. I feel like I'm just going to start saying people. <laughs> Thank yeah. you for that. <laughs> no, you're good. Yeah. Because yeah, for a while I was doing the same thing as you and I'm just like, oh, oh. it's easier to say people because <laughs> there's a lot of different types of people that can get endometriosis and deal with it. So, and same thing kind of moving on because I'm also really passionate about like postpartum care and everything and people who mm-hmm. give birth mm-hmm. instead of like, women, you know, giving birth and everything. And so kind of changing the language on that as well. Hopefully I can kind of be that person for my clients and kind of respect their experiences and understand their experiences and everything and help them feel better <laughs> and, yeah. and survive instead of or thrive instead of survive, excuse me. It's so funny that you keep saying Thrive. I don't know if you know the name of my coaching business. It's literally Revive and Thrive Coaching. Oh, I love that. I had no idea. <laughs> That's, that's that's funny good though. No, but that's a good. That's definitely a good name for like the reason why you wanted to go into coaching and everything. So yeah, yeah, like yeah. help people who are kind of at rock bottom figure out who they are, find themselves again, and and yeah, to your point, hopefully thrive. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. What's one thing that you wish you had known before you started this whole process? I mean, back maybe when even when you were a teenager. Hmm. I think honestly, I mean, honestly, even just knowing what endometriosis was, um, because at that time that was like over 15 years ago. Yeah. No one, it wasn't common. It's just now, I feel like in the last like year or two become a thing of like, oh, it might be this, you know, it's like most Mm -hmm. doctors have no idea, no knowledge, no nothing, even though it's not a newer disease. So honestly, just knowing about that, and I think having a doctor that actually was knowledgeable of that would have definitely helped. But also yeah. just like understanding birth control and how it truly isn't a bandage for no. all the pain and people. And also there's, what is it? I think it's Orlissa is a medication mm-hmm. that puts you into menopause. But if like you take it for and too long. Right. And if you take it for too long, it's like your body's like completely fucked. And I'm just like, cool, I don't want to deal with that one. I don't want to be in menopause when I'm like, a teenager or in my 20s. Thank you. Yeah, that's the solution so many doctors talk about. And it's like, oh man, I want to do actually a whole episode on Lupron and Orlissa because it's Mm -hmm. they're not cure-alls and they're actually quite dangerous. They can really fuck with your bone density. And yeah, anyways, so for future future information (laughs) that I'll make sure to talk about. Yeah, and it's just like, I think also, yeah, it's just mainly the birth control and endometriosis, but it's just like, I think also maybe like realizing for myself of get ready because I love research, but I'm like, wow, I like research like for professionally and everything. I'm like, oh, I love it. But like for personal health related stuff, I'm just like, oh, but I've become like a research pro at this point. I've had to, I mean, like going back because yeah. you were like, oh, like at 15, you were kind of curious about or aware, semi-aware of like maybe having an autoimmune disease. And yeah. I'm like, yeah, because I researched the crap out of everything before so that I could, because I had a feeling, I'm like, I'm probably going to have to advocate for myself somewhat. And yep. and it's sad that it has to be that way. So I think knowing, hey, you're about to be in for a real treat, <laughs> sarcasm, um, <laughs> <laughs> on top of what endometriosis is and 
you know, how birth control isn't like an end all be all. And also pregnancy. That's a big thing too. It's like, oh, get pregnant. We get yeah. pregnant. I'm just like, well, what if I physically can't get pregnant? Or what you if know? I don't want to? What if, I, what if I don't want to? Exactly. It's like, what if I can't or what if I don't want to? It's like, why is pregnancy, you know, a nine, 10 month period, this like, like, because I've heard a lot of people in the community who that's what their doctors have told them. Yes. You know, I've, I've always been asked like, well, when are you planning on having kids? It's, I'm not worried. I'm doing my master's right now. I don't care about having kids yeah. right now. <laughs> I was literally yesterday just looking at the Mayo Clinic. They have these... Okay. And like the Mayo Clinic is like one of the best clinics in the entire country, if not the world. Mm-hmm. And they have these, for the most part, informative and good video clips about like what is a disease and and right. like how do you define it and how what are risk factors and whatever. But they literally... I was watching the one on endometriosis and they were like, one of the risk factors is not having given birth. And I was just like, what the hell? Like you're supposed to be the best clinic and you're spouting this bullshit. Like that is not okay. It's like half, a lot of us don't want to have kids. Some of us can't have kids because of our endometriosis. Getting pregnant is not a cure for this disease. No, that's ridiculous. When I am, before I had surgery, I was consulting with my doctor and and I was asking like how do you determine when you go in there whether or not to do a hysterectomy because I mean definitionally definitionally yes <laughs> I can't, sure. can't say that word right <laughs> now by definition yes and <laughs> o happens outside the uterus I didn't know if I had adenomyosis as well yeah and so anyways I was asking I would rather basically I was saying I would rather just have it out. If it if you get in there and it's it's nuts, just take it out. And my doctor was like, he wasn't dismissive, but he also did not listen to that. He was like, look, it's a really extreme thing to do to someone your age at in their first surgery. And I'm like, okay, so how many surgeries does that mean that I should anticipate having? And like, when do I actually get to decide that maybe that's what I want? And I don't think that I'm glad that that didn't happen. Like I didn't actually have adenomyosis, so there's no need for it. But I want to be able, we all should be able to make that choice for Mm -hmm. ourselves. Yeah, that's something that I've come across as well of having like an elective or hysterectomy. But I'm like, yes, it's elective. But also, is it if your uterus and those parts are just like just taken over by endo and adeno and everything? You're still in the <laughs> childbearing age. Maybe when you're like 35, late 30s, we'll talk it over. And it's just like, okay, but until then, I'm most likely going to have to have excision surgery, maybe like every five years, give or yeah. take, depending on how fast it grows back. Right. Mm-hmm. So, well, and depending <laughs> on how successful it is mm-hmm. the first, like I'm exactly. three years out for my surgery and I'm at the point where I'm like, well, pretty sure he missed a, a bunch of right. it. So, and my symptoms are increasing again. So better start this process again. Like, okay, so I got like a year and a half of relief. Exactly. That's literally, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. And I'm just like, I'm also curious for myself, like whenever I get a better laparoscopy, (laughs) when I'm, I'm honestly thankful that in a way with this really bad experience, because she was also planning on doing ablation and I'm just like, Oh God, no. No. Yeah. I'm just like, I think, I dodged a bullet, even though I didn't fully dodge the bullet. But yeah. I dodged yeah, it. I'm just you. like, yeah, ablation. No, no, no. No, thank you. But yeah, it's definitely like super common with them missing a whole bunch. 
as well. So, and random, something else that I've also dealt with that just like came across my mind, but I've also had friends who have endometriosis. I think I've also dealt with, and it's like, I'm not proud of this, but dealing with a bit of like jealousy as well, because their diagnosis, you know, journey was so quick and easy and the doctors listened to them and they had their laparoscopies and got excision surgery done to get everything taken out. And, and then it's just like me over here, like, hi, like flailing. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So that's something else I just like came across my mind. I'm like, yeah, that's, mm -hmm. I think that's that's important to share. Thank you for saying that out loud. I think that's normal. Honestly, you know, we feel we want everybody, every Mm -hmm. single one of us who experiences endometriosis to have a diagnosis, to be treated, to be treated well and fully. And also it sucks when it's not you. Like, yeah, it's hard. I'm like, I, I love you. And I'm so glad that you got this, this procedure done. And like, I really hope it helps you. Yeah. Um, And also what the hell? Yeah, exactly. But I'm also just like, am I a dick for being like, what the hell? Like, why am I not getting the same? Because I I mean, and it sounds bad, but it's like my symptoms have been worse than theirs. They've only exhibited like minor to moderate symptoms. And I'm over here like, I probably should be in a hospital, but I'm just my pride. I'm like, and I know I'm, it's just going to be more medical trauma, most likely. I'm like, do I want to deal with it? No, probably not. I'll stay home and fight it out basically. But yeah. And I think, yeah, it's like the systemic failure of the medical system to mm-hmm. accurately treat endometriosis has created the situation in which we are jealous of each other for having good treatment. Or, And again, we all want it for each other. But just that feeling of like, why can't I get this too? It's because of the failure of the system, right? It's not because of individual patients or people right. who experience this disease. It's It's because... Every single doctor who is a specialist in this area should know what to do, should know how to diagnose, should know the different presentations, should know how to do everything. And that just simply is not the case. And we're still quite a long way from that, unfortunately. So it's a shame that that's sort of like the position that we've been put in. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, last question I guess I would ask is what's something that you would want to share or a message, or a lesson, or mm-hmm. just something you'd want us people hearing this to know or take away. I think definitely my biggest lesson, and I wish I had followed it, but just kind of listening to your gut. And if a doctor is saying something that you're just like, mm, I'm not really sure about that, or I'm not, no, that doesn't vibe well with me. Speaking up, and I know it's so it's so hard to speak up, and so I. I actually would start bringing like close people that I knew would support me and like also advocate for me in the doctor's office and everything. Being able to have that support system is really helpful. Making sure you have like people in your corner, like true people in your corner that are actually going to support you and be there for you and meet you where you're at is definitely important in this whole whole process. So yeah. I think even more important is is your follow your gut thing. Like if you're not feeling, if something isn't feeling right or like what happened for me and it sounds like what's happening for you too is that you just know, you know that mm-hmm. this is what you have and you're not gonna just get that answer easily sometimes. You really have to pursue what you know to be right and it can be really hard, but like don't give up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's like, <sighs> yeah, it's it's unfortunate that 
I don't know. It's still kind of like being in this surviving aspect, but it's like once you kind of get that diagnosis and you have a supportive team and whether that's like medical team and friends and family, it's definitely like the light at the end of the tunnel and thriving. So somewhat thriving compared to what it was before. Right. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. I really wish you all the best of luck in getting the diagnosis that you know that you need to have and, and getting the care that you deserve. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's good to actually talk about this with someone that can understand and relate with it on. So like I said, even though like our experiences are different in some ways, it's like in general, it's all dealing with the systemic bullshit of the (laughs) medical system. Right. And so it's like, we can all relate. Yeah. And sometimes you just, you just need to talk to someone who gets it. Right. Yeah. So I appreciate it. Thanks for talking to me. I appreciate you. Yeah. Thank you. Hey, I hope you found a connection or felt impacted or got something from my conversation with Brenna. I really enjoyed talking to her. If you'd want to connect with me, I'd love that. Please feel free to send me an email if you want to be on the podcast, if you want to learn more about my coaching or anything. Send me an email. My email is katie at reviveandthrivecoach.com or you can find me on my website, reviveandthrivecoach.com or on Instagram at reviveandthrivecoaching. Hope you have a great day. See you next time.